Luke 13. We're going to start in verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues at the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And I forgot, I was really nice and I put this all up there on the screen for you in case you didn't have a Bible. But look what I've already blown through. Let me go through that. I'll read it from on there. And in that way, I know I'm with you. He puts his hands on her and says, you are freed from your disability. He lays his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are... There are six days. You know what I did? I got my reading glasses on. They're for up close. There. There are six days in which to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. That's a nice guy, isn't he? I just can't even keep reading on. This guy is so nice. Wrong day, woman. Get out of here. Come back another day. Wow. Anyway, then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on a Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests. It made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And he doesn't explain anything to them at that point. The disciples had heard these parables before by this time, but everybody else is wondering what in the world does that have to do with anything? One thing to point out, uh, when you look at your Bible, you know, there are headings that are not actually part of the text. Those are just put in there by editors when they publish these things. And so different Bibles have different headings in different spots. They break up our paragraphs in ways that sometimes maybe maybe is uh, less helpful than helpful. And this might be one of those. We tend to think of these parables be, as being a totally separate uh, time period, like he did this and healed the woman, leaves the synagogue, goes somewhere else and tells these parables. But actually, they're all tied together. And the main point may not be the main point you're thinking of. The parables are the main point, not what happens with this woman. Now, that doesn't that's not diminishing. What I'm saying is, what he says in these parables is all about what happened with her. And what happened with her is all about what happened in these parables. And there's a, a larger narrative going on here than simply the fact that a woman showed up at church and uh, it was the wrong day for healings. Right. So it was that sort of a thing. So let's, let's go back and, and break this down a little bit. It's synagogue. Jesus went to church on Saturday. Right. He was Jewish. And so that was the tradition. You went to church on the Sabbath and. And they called it synagogue, but, you know, and they went and they studied the word of God and they sang and they praised God and they they read the word of God. And so a lot of the things that we do actually are really similar. If you've been in churches where there's two, this one sometimes is where there are two aisles and a row down the center, you've been to synagogue because that's how long we've been doing that. We've been having our seats arranged like that so long. It goes back to before Jesus days. And so, you know, it's just traditions stay a long time, don't they? 
And he would go to synagogue. And, you know, in Luke chapter 4, he actually got to do the Scripture reading that morning. And he gets up and he reads from Isaiah about how he has come to set the captive free, to set loose the oppressed, to heal the blind and the sick and the lame. And he reads that Scripture from Isaiah, sits down and says, oh, by the way, that was me. That is not the tradition in church. You don't normally read a Scripture and go, and by the way, that was all about me. That would actually be... The opposite of the purpose for why we come to church, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But that's that's what Jesus did in a different frame of mind, a different attitude than a, a, any other person might do it. He did it simply telling them your Messiah has finally come and God has good things in store for you. And now here he is back in Sabbath because that was his custom. It was the day of worship. He's going to be in worship. And so there he is. And this time uh, he's at, at this point. More of an observer until this woman comes in, a participant. But you know what I'm saying. They had, each synagogue had a ruler. We might say a, a president, a chairman. They had the, in, in what Scripture calls a lot of times the synagogue ruler. And he kind of ran things. And so this guy is there and he's going through the service. And it's a service that is so traditional. And that's not bad. I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense. But it's so traditional that a lot of what they were going to say that day had already been planned, you know, a couple of centuries before. I mean, there are churches doing that today. And if you go to an Orthodox church, their order of worship, ours... Actually, I think we've been doing ours for five years in the exact same order and number of songs. Uh, but we, we're, we're newbies. We're newbies. Because, and that's not even, I don't guess, on purpose. I think that's by default. They do it in the Orthodox Church. It's the same order of worship that they have been using since 800 and something A.D. Written by a guy named John Chrysostom. And, and he, he's, he's still in charge of the order of worship 1,200 years later. Figure that. Can you imagine that? There's a few of them that would remember the first Sunday that it was done, wouldn't you? If it was 800 years ago, 1,200 years ago. But that's what they would do. They were this way. They didn't even have 800 years yet in this particular order of worship, but they had it. And this guy doesn't like change. I'm curious. Raise your hands if you like change. That was a trick. Raise your hands if you don't like change. Still a trick. Most people who don't like change don't, didn't raise their hand because that was a change. When I was a kid, we didn't raise hands in church. See? We don't like change. There were more of you who didn't like change. If somebody changes your mother's recipe for macaroni and, cha- and, che- and change, macaroni and change, macaroni and cheese, how do you react? Hmm? Is it a problem? If somebody had brought oyster stuffing to Thanksgiving, would there have been a problem? There would have been in my house. <laughs> they'd, they'd have gone flying out with their oyster stuffing. But oh, I hate that stuff. And I, oh, it's just gross. I don't know. When I was a kid, we did fences all the time in the summer. It, seemed, it wasn't really all the time. It was a few times here and there. But my dad liked to do it in the summer. Partly that was because free labor was out of school for the summer. And partly was because I believe he liked to sweat us out. I, I think that's true. My brother's here. He can verify this. I think he'd like to sweat us out. I've never been able to figure out, and maybe my brother John, maybe he can, he can fill me in. Maybe, maybe you figured this out by now. My dad liked to collect at that time ice chests. I mean, had tons of ice chests. But he wouldn't bring any ice and cold food when we were working on fences. What, 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 is, what is that? He's not here this morning, so I can say this. What, what is that? I don't understand. But he would bring Vienna sausage, potted meat, I'm not even asking for a show of hands. Potted meat, 
I, I, I introduced some of my New Yorker friends to potted meat. They had never heard of it before. I introduced them because I love reading the list of ingredients from potted meat to people who've never read it. You talk about your one gross thing. Anything that uses the word tripe more than once, whoo, you got to have pot to like it. That's the, that's the problem. That's why, probably why it's called potted meat. you got to be high on something. Okay, so we would have potted meat, and my dad loved smoked oysters in a can. I have yet to find. I, I bought a, I, I, I like fountain pens. I bought a fountain pen from India the other day that has been in a warehouse since it was new in the 1980s. It's new old stock. Made in the 80s and stuck in a package. It smells like cheese from under your toenails. I don't know what plastic this pen is made of. It's a cool pen, but it stinks. I actually used it the other day. I was telling one of my children, you need to stop that. And they wouldn't stop it. And I said, I'm going to make you smell the pen. They haven't done it again. They haven't done it again. You don't want to smell the pen. And you don't want to smell smoked oysters, which are worse than the pen. It's like somebody took the pen and, and dipped it in oysters. It's disgusting. So just just gross. But that was that was like it became the tradition every year. So we would eat sard and sardines. Now I still eat sardines, but I need like hot weather. I also ate them in Russia, which half the Russians smelled like sardines anyway. So it, it was fine. And on the bus. On the bus, sweat smells like sardines, sunflower seeds, and vodka. It's not the best. There'll, be nev- there'll never be a Russian bus Yankee candle. It's not going to happen. But mm, I'm choking up thinking about it. It was that it still is tradition. You know, every now and then, just, you know, I like to go back in my mind. And so I'll have sardines and crackers. And I skip the sunflower seeds and the vodka. But, but I, I stick with the, sun, with the sardines. We do things like that, don't we? And we don't like it when people start to change our traditions. Maybe you've got a place that you sit at the table. You thought I was going to say at church, but I wasn't because uh, I'll move the chairs and <laughs> the, we just we just shake the chairs up every now and then and at least get you to move over three feet. But the maybe you have a place you sit at the table that you, you know, you think is always your spot and somebody comes and sits at it and you actually had to spend five minutes deciding on now where am I supposed to sit? I mean, what do you what do you do? You sit in the same place. Archie Bunker, some of you are sit in the same place in the living room. I can say that because we have a love seat for our recliner and a reclining love seat. And I do have a favorite side of the love seat. You know, it's the one whichever one Tanya's on. I'm getting lunch now and dessert. See how that works? I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. So there we go. But we have our traditions and we don't like when people change it. And this guy is changing all over the place. And then you take a personality that really likes laws and rules. You you know those people? Really, I mean, really likes laws and rules. We're not just talking grammar Nazi. We're talking serious, watching every step that you do, everything that you do. Most of these people live in housing associations. I call them Nazis too lazy to march. They live in housing associations. They cruise through. They see whose garage door is open that's not supposed to be. And then they call a meeting. And they are usually president of the association. Or they get you to be president of the association. This happened to my father-in-law once. And then they drive around and look at everything. And then they call you and say, you need to bring this up in the next meeting. Right? And you think, I'm not answering their phone calls anymore. Because they just are terrible terrible about you didn't do that right 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 that's this guy and jesus who i think probably did it right is being called out by this guy although i think he's a little bit of a coward did you notice in the text how he addresses the situation 
I, I think he's actually, even though he's, he's one of these sticklers, he's kind of a, a coward stickler. He wants to make sure he's heard. He wants to get the attention back on himself because that's part of his problem is that, that somebody else is getting all the attention. And uh, this is what he says. Let me find it. I would, when I read all of this over the last couple of weeks, it was with one of those that has the nice red letters. And then this morning I got one where it's all black letters and I've lost my place. But verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Did you know why I said I think he's a little bit cowardly in this? Because he doesn't say it to Jesus. He doesn't even say it to the woman who has been healed. He says it to everybody else that he thinks is already on his side. And he says, did you guys see this? We all know this is not the way this is done. I think I'm just pointing at an empty aisle, by the way, here. I tried. We all know how this is supposed to be done. These guys have done it all wrong. And he addresses it that way to make sure that whoever it is that he's talking to over here, he doesn't have to look in the eye when he says it, but he wants to make sure they overhear him correcting the situation. You've, you've, we've all seen this done. We've all maybe been at the blunt of this or the brunt of, of, of this being done. Nobody likes this, but that's that's the kind of guy that this is. Do you see this woman? How dare she come in here and try to get healed on a Sabbath on a Saturday? Wow, that's his attitude, though. And I think it's actually easier for us to get there than we might think. The starting point of it is what's up there. It's pride. That's where all of our double standards come from. When he says hypocrites, he's also saying, you've got a bunch of double standards. You take care of your animals, but you don't, you don't take care of people. Well, what's he trying to get at? He's trying to get at the fact that they're hypocritical and they've got too much pride and not enough love. This guy cares only that his rules are being broken, that his order of worship has been disrupted, and it's a problem. He doesn't even see the woman. Another time, Jesus is at dinner. And that's how he corrected the situation at Simon's house. And he asked him, do you see this woman? And I don't think he was just pointing out like, you know who I'm about to talk about. I think he's saying to Simon, you don't even really see her, do you? You see her sin. You see her problems. You see her reputation. You see your disgust. You see your snottiness. But do you see her? I don't think this guy really saw the woman either. I don't think he cared to. I don't think that was why he had come to church to see other people and to care for other people and to love on other people, to encourage other people. He was on a power trip, which is ironic because control and power and being a disciple of Jesus are antithetical. It's not just an oxymoron. It will turn us into morons. Absolutely. We come to worship as a way of ceding our control to Jesus, of letting God have his way with our life, not of us trying to keep our thumb on everything. This guy didn't, he didn't understand that and he, he wasn't living it as this woman came in. His pride was just far too great. And on top of that, Jesus says, you know, you got a double standard. You would have taken better care on the Sabbath of your animals than you're taking care of this woman that you're trying not to see that you hope to ignore. This ironic thing about that is, it was law to take care of her. It was. It just wasn't the one that he wanted to keep. 
We have a way of, of exempting ourselves from the ones that we don't care about. But then really hammering down on the things that are easy for us to do. John Fisher, in his book, Twelve Steps for a Recovering Pharisee, talks about how we generally, and that this is what the Pharisees did, and when, when we're becoming Pharisaic, for lack of a better way to put it, and this guy might not even have been a Pharisee, he's at least a, a, a teacher, the, the mindset that we get is we start to really hammer down and hunker down on the things that we are able to do easily ourselves. So we're really religious in ways that we can control. We're really religious in the ways that we can be successful. And so we emphasize those. The synagogue ruler emphasized keeping of the tradition. That was his strength. But his strength had become his weakness. It's supposed to work the other way around. Grace makes weaknesses into strength. Pride makes strengths into weaknesses. And so he had, had taken what could have been a gift and turned it into a curse. And so he, he hammers on everybody who doesn't do as he does because he can do that easily because that's his giftedness. But then when somebody needs compassion, compassion clearly, I don't think it takes a, a deep theologian with any degrees to read this and see Compassion, not this man's gift at this point in his life. Maybe that would change with grace, but it was not his gift at that point in his life. And so that's not important. And Jesus had already talked to people about how, you know, you count out your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but you forget about justice and you forget about mercy. You forget about the hunched over woman who comes for healing. You forget about the hungry and the poor. And the needy. And that's not a new problem, and it's not a gone problem, is it? He looks at them and says, You know, you, you treat your animals better. I was, uh, it's kind of funny, this topic has come up several times in other ways and places. Uh, one uh, radio host was talking about it a couple of years ago, and then referenced it again the other day when I was listening to his program, where he did a, a call in. He tends to do less political type stuff. And uh, does uh, he likes to do topics that are more about, even though he's not, he's not a, it's not a faith-oriented radio talk program, he goes there a lot uh, in, in philosophy and faith and those kinds of things. And so he was asking the question, if you saw a person drowning and you saw a dog drowning, which do you save? And so he had people call in. Which do you save? And he brought this up and he talked about it and he talks about it fairly often because he's coming from a biblical, a Judeo-Christian ethic and perspective. And he's coming at it from this biblical perspective that people are made in the image of God, that we were made to reflect his spirit, his heart, his abilities to an extent, to an extent, but, but his nature. And we'll do so even more in the next life. But that there are other beings, creatures in society, and, or not in society, in, in, in uh, nature. That's the word I'm looking for. In nature. That are created by God, but are not created in God's image. They do not have the soul. They do not have the spirit. They do not have a lot of the things that we as humans experience. The same levels of creativity and intelligence and all of that are not there. And that's not just a, a, a result of... Uh, Evolution, that is a result of God breathing into Adam the breath of life in a way that he breathed into nothing else in all of 
creation. So if you come at it from a perspective that people are made in God's image, then which one do you save? You only get to choose one. I know who that was back there. I saw that. I know what you're trying to do. You're disrupting our synagogue service, and you can only do that on any day but Sunday. No, I'm kidding with you. <laughs> that, that would be bad, wouldn't it? I think, I think we just had a slide on that. Yeah, you, 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 which do you save? And I'm not going to make you answer, okay? Uh, because I, I don't want to have to call you down here right now. But who do you save? The other day, uh, somebody else was talking about this, and they were talking about how much harder it is to raise money to deal with human life, human suffering, homelessness, the hungry, abused kids, and things like that, than it is to raise money for animals. And it's true. And that's not just true in first century Judea. That's, that's true in America. And there are places where, uh, let me go ahead and jump to this one, there are places in our country that have now made it illegal, and this has been going on for at least 10 years, making it illegal to feed the homeless in public spaces. There were ministries. One of them was Shane Claiborne's ministry in Philadelphia, I think it was, uh, that got in trouble. And I think one of those I put up there had, yeah, I think it's this one, uh, was centered around that. No, this one's California. Anyway, uh, he ran into trouble in Philadelphia because they were, they were going and feeding people and handing meals out at a, a public park. Just one little spot in this huge park. They were feeding people. Well, people didn't like that because they had to see the homeless while they were getting their food. And they didn't want to think about homeless people while they were in the park. Now, we've probably got all kinds of, people, of, of perspectives of that in the room. Some of you may be thinking, well, yeah, I don't want a whole bunch of people just roaming around the park. And, you know, I don't know what's going on or where they've been or why they're out there. And some of you are thinking, how horrible. They're trying to help somebody and you're going to tell them to stop helping somebody. I would fall into that camp. I mean, I, I kind of get both sides, but I, but there's, there's one, one thing that rises above, right? It's very much like the synagogue situation. I, you know, I, I'm not like that guy, but, but it, it, things can get really disruptive. Things can kind of get, uh, really hard to work around in the middle of a service sometimes. But do you actually want that to make you into curmudgeon? No. Do you want that to turn you into the kind of a person who's more concerned with Timex than Jesus? No, because you can't be concerned most with both. Only one gets on your throne. And so what do you do? What do you do? Jesus is saying what? Did Jesus tell the woman to sit down and get quiet? He didn't. He walks over to her. He puts his hand on her and heals her, speaks to her, acknowledges her, something the other man did not want to do. And he doesn't just restore her back. He restores her dignity. I've kind of skipped a little part of this um, because I don't want us to get off into too much of a tangent, but it's part of the story. Uh, Jesus acknowledges that this woman had something deeper than just a back problem. We don't know whether scoliosis, arthritis, or there's several things that could have been that would have caused this, just from a biological perspective, medical perspective. We don't know what that was about. 
But for whatever reason, Jesus links this to her spirit. And so there have been some who have said, uh, scholars who say, well, both medical and theological, who say, well, maybe the problem wasn't, you know, that it was a demon like she was possessed. He calls her a believer. And throughout the New Testament, it seems to make clear that believers could not be possessed. But believers can be hounded, right? They can be picked at, poked at, and made to suffer by Satan. And so something is going on here that's bigger than just the back. Could be spiritual. Uh, Alistair Begg, really good preacher from uh, Cleveland, he talks about how it's, it's quite possible that, that this was an, an emotional, psychological thing, that uh, something was so stressing her that over time she just got so wore down that eventually she didn't get back up. Like it created the physical problem. And that happens, right? When somebody is really worn out sometimes in certain ways, I'm not going to get specific, uh, but in certain ways, you can look at a person and know that it's not just that they have some health problems. It's not just aging. There's been some hard living and some stress. And I mean, that stuff shows in our bodies. Our bodies are not disconnected in the ways that we like to think. You know, emotionally, spiritually, physically, it's all intertwined. Anger, it's scientifically proven anger over years and years and years of time is a contributor both to heart disease and cancer. It it can eat you up quite literally. And so he was talking about that this woman may have had a physical condition, but she also had a spiritual, emotional something that Jesus is acknowledging but not getting specific about. Something spiritual had been going on in her life either because of or causing, don't know which, This physical malady, at the very least, making it much, much worse. You know, sometimes people get into physical problems, which puts them into a depression, and the depression causes them to to not get up and around, and then that just makes all the every physical thing even worse. And the next thing you know, you got problems you didn't have that aren't even related, and it just snowballs. Right? That's this woman. Maybe some of you can identify with her. They were starting to overlook her just in the same way uh, that even today we start to overlook problems we don't know how to solve. Isn't that really why we end up with this? We're wanting to overlook problems we don't necessarily know how to solve, and so we want to pretend they're not there. We kick them out of the park because we want to pretend that everything's just frisbees and dogs and bologna sandwiches, and we don't have a homeless problem. What homeless problem? Right? We don't have an abuse problem. What abuse problem? No. The problems are out there. We're just, well, de Blasio got caught this week trying to ship him off to New Jersey. Isn't that wrong? Good night. You can never, we would never ship our people off to Oklahoma, right? <laughs> don't be getting any ideas. It's not right. It's not right. He tried to ship him off to New Jersey because New Yorkers are kind of snotty about New Jersey. And so he just thought, well, we'll just ship him over there. Okay. This is actually the main point. The point is actually not her back. The point is not that he was the Messiah and able, well, it kind of is, that he's the Messiah and able to heal her. The point is not even this, exactly just this one guy's bad attitude. It's all bigger. It's all bigger. This woman has come with a problem that they don't want to deal with. She's become an other, an outsider, one of those people. And they would just rather her not show up with all of her problems in their church service. Back during the joy bus ministry stuff, that's, that was sometimes the attitude. 
You had people that were gung-ho and awesome and worked hard. Some of them burned themselves out. But they were bringing kids from broken homes and all kinds of situations into church services. Well, those kids didn't know how to act in a church service. And that wasn't their fault. It wasn't bad. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem. Or at worst, it was a good problem. Some, some churches, I remember, uh, I think it was the church in Monday, uh, where I, we just judged UIL this, this week. They had something like 45 kids that would come to church on Sunday morning that had no other family in the church. Those kids would get on there and go to Bible class and have a ball. They were a little noisy, it's true. Okay, and, 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 and they could, they, they might not have, back then it was the, it was the synagogue tradition to make sure that you had your tassels and your ties all right. Well, they didn't know about any of that stuff, and the Lord didn't care, and so they were having a good time. And so, that happened. But, you would sometimes have people, I don't think I like those children, they're kinda loud. You know that's how those people sound half the time, right? I don't, I don't like it when they come in here. Those, those kids, those are too much. I could barely even hear the announcements. You know nobody wanted to hear the announcements anyway. Why are you complaining about that? And so people got mad. They got upset. And so what happened? Well, there went the opportunities. It shut down. What a shame. What a shame. Because it worked, actually. It's one of those things that actually worked. But we kind of got like... we, we had, we had you only, It only takes one. But you kind of end up with... Getting that one synagogue ruler dude upset. He's not always a dude and he's not always a ruler, but he's always there. She's always there. And they get upset. Eventually they find a a like-minded friend and they burn it all down. And that happened all over the place. The same problem that would have, or the same solution to that is the same solution to the homeless thing. It's the same solution uh, to uh, the synagogue ruler and the bent over woman that day. And it's in the parable. Let's read the parable. Get it back in our heads. It's been a few minutes. Verse 18. He said, therefore. Therefore. Okay? When you read it, therefore, what is this all linked to? It's linked to what just happened before. Right? So he says, therefore, because you guys, not you guys, but because those guys had been hypocrites and because you're taking better care of your donkey than you are your brother or your sister in Christ, there's something you need to remember. So let me tell you a story. What's the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree, a whole tree. And birds of the air made nests. And it's branches. He tells this story one time. He says, it's the biggest one in the garden. I think he was probably talking about the garden he was in at the moment. He's like, it's the biggest one in the garden. And birds come from all over the place. And they live in this tree. And they find a home there. And they find shelter there. He says, that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't. If you're going to come in here with your problems, you've got to do it on another day. Because right now we're busy worshiping God and learning about how to be compassionate. He says, the kingdom of God It's like a tree. Do trees have hours? Do trees have days? Do birds only live in the trees Sunday to Friday? No. They don't have to vacate at 6 p.m. on a Friday evening because it's the beginning of the Sabbath. No. He says the kingdom of God is like the tree. Those birds fly in and they make a home. Nobody's telling them which birds get to come and which birds have to go. Nobody's inspecting their broken wings and their feet to see whether or not they're worthy to be in that tree. A tree is a tree. The kingdom of God is a tree. 
Everybody who wants to come and live within this tree gets to come. And they get to live within this tree. It is always the right day to come to Jesus, isn't it? That's why the Hebrew writer says, today, as long as it is called today. It's like one big eternal day until the Lord comes. Everybody gets to come in and the door is wide open and they don't get turned away. If you want to be a part of Christ's kingdom, you get to be a part of Christ's kingdom. Always. And then he tells this second parable because he wants us to catch another aspect of the kingdom of God. Verse 20. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And then he leaves town. He just tells them that. It's like leaven worked into dough. I'll see you all later. You've got to love the way Jesus taught sometimes. We would all be sitting there going, so that was it? That was it? Okay. Okay. This is what he does. What's he trying to get us to see? He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about a day that was inaccessible to compassion or for compassion. And he says, but the kingdom of God is like yeast that works through the whole thing. How much of your week is God's? So just this little part right here. How much of your week do you focus on following Christ and becoming more like Him in your character? Is it just certain times? He says, no. The yeast of the kingdom of God gets worked through the whole dough. Every part of your life, every part of your heart, Every part of your soul and your mind, every part of your day, every part of your week, every part of your month, it is all kingdom. Kingdom meaning it is all under the Lord Jesus' reign. He rules and He reigns and He leads you by His Spirit and His Word through all of it. He says once the kingdom starts touching one part of your life, it's going to start touching every part of your life. And it's open to everybody. That's what he wants you to know. From that day when he went to church to your day while you're here at church, that the kingdom of God is open to everyone. Never shut a door that Jesus doesn't shut. Never reject a soul that he doesn't accept and redeem. And let his reign and his compassion and his love and his joy and his peace work its way through every bit of your life. The parts of your life where there is no peace, that may just be a part of your life you're still needing to surrender to Jesus. That may be why there's no peace. Because He can make peace out of chaos. Sometimes it takes a while to work the dough, but He can do it. Let Him work the dough. That's what He calls you to. And He calls you to that this morning as we stand and as we sing.